Thanks once again to everyone who made today's service possible and who had a part in it. If you have your Bible handy, I want once again to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I would like to call out two of the verses that Joe read for us a moment ago. Let me direct your attention, please, to verse 13 and also verse 14, and we'll read those verses again. Paul writes in verse 13, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, let all your things be done with charity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day you've given to us. We thank you for the opportunities that we've had for worship and the opportunities that may yet unfold in today. And Father, we just are jealous that as we come to the climaxing part of this service, as we look into the Word of God and take some time not only to study the Bible, but to preach the Word and to look for its application to our hearts. Once again, dear God, more than anything else, I want you to quiet my heart. I want you to cleanse my heart. I pray, Lord, that you would just give to me that <clears throat> confidence and that sense of the presence of your Holy Spirit so that as this message is brought for folks uh, today, that, Lord, it will be an encouragement. It will reach the hearts of believers. And, Lord, once again, if we have anybody joining in today who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, we're always jealous, Lord. We're always wanting to make the prayer that you will reach out and touch people like that and draw them to yourself, convince them of their lost estate, convince them also of the great love of God in Jesus Christ and the fact that he offers us forgiveness and a home in heaven through simple faith in his precious blood. And so would you bless this time of looking into the word of God now, for we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already had quite a bit of attention called to the fact that this coming Monday is Memorial Day Observed, and I've always liked to put my, my regular morning series aside for occasions like this. I think if the day is important enough for us to observe, then many times it's also important enough for us to find the Bible principles that may be involved. And of course, uh, when you think about Memorial Day, you realize that Memorial Day is the day that we've set aside to recognize the sacrifice and we think more generally of soldiers, soldiers who have given their lives. And of course, later in the year, we have another day that we do this, Veterans Day, which is a little bit more general. Memorial Day particularly calls attention to those who have made the ultimate sacrifice of their lives on behalf of our country and on behalf of our freedom. And so today, I wanted to call your attention to some verses that stuck out to me recently, the ones that we read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is sort of interesting because 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is very much akin to what you find in the closing uh, words of Paul's other epistles. He often has personal greetings. He also has certain exhortations that he gives uh, to people at the very end that sort of summarize some of the things that maybe he, he, he didn't say but spent more time with other things earlier in the epistle. What particularly draws me to this in favor of today's message for Memorial Day is the way in which the four commands of verse number four, uh, fourteen seem to have, or verse number thirteen rather, seem to have almost a military flavor, almost a military crispness and precision to them. And the words themselves have a bit of that flavor. Take a look at the verse again. Boom, 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 boom. Four things quickly, sharply, precisely, and to the point. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. And you can right away see how those would lend themselves to kind of the, the crispness of someone giving orders and, and, uh, 
and and, and they they actually have a a military flavor to them because those things are particularly important in the life of a soldier. Those particular exhortations are. What's especially interesting is when you get to verse 14, however, and Paul maybe surprises us because right on the heels of something like what we saw in verse 13, we see verse 14 where it says, let all your things be done with charity. And so he brings up the subject of Christian love. And now when you blend all of this together, you get the distinctly Christian soldier, let all your things be done with charity or love. And it's a thing that flavors or is meant to flavor the whole. Um, many of us, I think, we get up in the morning and we enjoy a, a morning cup of coffee, perhaps not everyone. I don't know about you, but I don't drink my coffee black. I, I like it with some cream and I like it with some sugar as well. And many people have developed a taste for coffee that's black. But if you think about this, coffee that's black is bitter. And we develop maybe a taste for it, but it's bitter. When you put something sweet with it, a sweetener or sugar or something of this nature, then that sugar pervades the whole and gives it a sweet taste that we also enjoy. This is what you should think of verse 14 is doing. So this is really interesting, and I hope I'll be able to do a great job this morning in the message of getting these thoughts across to you in such a way that they'll be appropriate for the Memorial Day weekend as we think about that, and also be appropriate for our Christian lives. Now, I've entitled the message today, Stand Fast, and the way that I would like to uh, develop this for you is I, I want to um, look about look at these particular words, be sure we understand them correctly, then I want to see how they were uniquely appropriate for situations that were going on in the Corinthian church. And if, then, of course, we just simply want to take it a step further, because if these situations were going on in the Corinthian church and the Holy Spirit felt it was important enough for... Uh, Paul to be inspired to write this letter to us, then we can be certain that there's an applicability to local churches today. And so we're going to look at, at all five of these, so we can't take a lot of time on any one in particular, but we'll start with verse 13 and the four uh, commands that are there that have that sort of sharp crispness of almost a military flavor and bearing to them. First of all, I've entitled what we find at the opening of verse 13, watch ye as stay awake watch ye. Now, the word that you find here in the original language is most frequently translated in the New Testament exactly as you find it here in verse 13, watch or be watchful. I like the idea of stay awake because it's the same thing, but has a way of kind of getting us to realize the importance of what's going on because of what can happen if we don't. We don't want to be asleep at the switch, and we sort of know the background of that expression as well. But certainly when you think about a soldier, think about a soldier for a moment who's on sentry duty, how important it is for him to be watchful. If he's not watchful, it can have dire consequences. And so sometimes we think about it in a context like that. Other times we can be more general and just think about the importance of being watchful or staying awake to the concepts of situational or operational awareness. Now, sometimes you hear those uh, terms being used, and, and they have a particular rele relevance to military context, but they can also be more general. Um, do we know exactly what that is? Well, you often hear those terms, and there's a, an interesting and very helpful non-technical definition of what situational awareness is. It's basically this, knowing what is going on around us. Now, have you ever thought about how important knowing what is going on around us is? Let's take 
another example for a moment. You're driving along, you have your cell phone in your car, and you hear the signal that you've received a text message. Or you're driving along and your cell phone rings. Well, what's your first impulse? You know you're not supposed to text while you're driving, of course, because that has dire consequences. But I'll tell you what I've found, and I can't speak for you, but I've certainly found this to be true. The moment you take your eyes off the road to look down at where your phone is and to grab it, or to even just glance ever so quickly to see what the text message might say and whether or not it's important that you need to pull over and answer the message at that time, there's that momentary lack of situational awareness. I know when I have done this in the past, uh, it has made my wife very nervous, and I have seen times where that momentary distraction has great risk attached to it. So, this is another way of thinking about how important our situational awareness is as Christians, our operational awareness. I like the way that one uh, particular secular writer put it when he said this, we can often deceive ourselves into thinking that what is really, into thinking that we know what is really going on around us. Operational awareness is a constant exercise. It is never a one-and-done achievement. It requires continuous observation, analysis, and attention. Let's bring to bear for another example or illustration or story for just a moment, just to see how important that really is. Think back in Pennsylvania history to the Johnstown Flood, which occurred in 1889. And I'm sure many of you have some familiarity with that. Maybe you visited the site, maybe you've seen some of the films and done some reading about this. I find it fascinating. But you know, in the aftermath of that, to the, resident, to the residents of Johnstown, many of them were convinced, and even around the nation from the stories in the press, that the blame lay solely at the feet of men like Andrew Carnegie and Henry Clay uh, Frick and other uh, wealthy and prominent members of the Pittsburgh businessmen who were members of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club that owned the dam. And many people felt that they were responsible for the collapse. But you know, beloved, in many of these situations, there's plenty of blame to go around. And that's certainly true here because that South Fork Dam had had problems. It had actually given away partially before in 1862. Then you come to the 17 years later, to the year 1879, the year that the directors uh, purchased the reservoir and the lands along its shore for wealthy Pittsburgh families to have a, a summer retreat, a place for a summer retreat, at that point, the dam had a four-foot bulge in the middle. Not only that, but it also lacked discharge pipes at the bottom so that excess water accumulating in the reservoir could be drained away and thereby lessen the pressure and the impact to the dam. And so much of it really was attributable to the all-too-common attitude of, well, sure, it might give way Someday, it might flood the city someday, but floods are common occurrences in Johnstown, and the dam probably would not break uh, in, in their lifetimes. Well, it's so easy to become like that in our Christianity, isn't it? And this is what Paul is trying to say to the, to the Corinthians. It's so important that you stay awake. It's so important that you be watchful. And I find some really interesting examples of this. Paul warns them about a foe. And he warns them of the need to be constantly on guard, to be constantly vigilant in the light of that foe. So, for example, if you turn a couple pages over and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, listen to this. He says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. 
Are we on guard each day? Do we realize that we have a foe, an adversary? Paul was trying to say to the people at Corinth, listen, you, you need to wake up about how you're handling this situation. If you look at the context there with this brother who was in sin, you had to discipline him. But if you're not careful to extend forgiveness of him, then Satan will take advantage of that and you'll have another problem in the church. And this is what he's referring to when he says, we're not ignorant of his devices. But it seemed like they weren't very well attuned to that because Paul had to warn them uh, about it. Otherwise, Satan would get a, a, an advantage if they didn't extend forgiveness to the man once he repented. He has to warn them again about the evil one. When you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, listen to this. He says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And once again, he warns them about Satan. And I... Beloved, I have to tell you, I, I think probably many times we go through the day, we get up in the morning, we're lackadaisical about our Christianity, we don't realize that we have a foe, that we have an adversary. It would be a totally different um, um, affair whatsoever if you knew that someone had taken a contract out, uh, a, a killer had taken a contract out to have you killed. Well, when you went out in the morning, you'd be plenty aware. You'd be plenty situationally aware. You'd be plenty operationally aware. And yet, spiritually, the same thing is really true. And my one of my favorite verses along this line is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And Peter says the exact thing. Be sober, be vigilant. And there's the word. Be vigilant, be watchful, stay awake. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom ye may devour. What one of us would not be careful if we were walking through the woods and we knew that the place had poisoned snakes like rattlesnakes or copperheads or something like that. What one of us wouldn't be looking down to be sure that we knew where we were putting our feet down and that we weren't going to step on a poisonous snake? But yet we pursue our, Christ our Christian life as, it, as if everything was roses, as if there were never any problems, as if the devil were not always constantly seeking to create problems both in our churches and in our own personal lives. So the first command that he gives is stay awake. It's important spiritually to be operationally and situationally aware and to stay awake. Let's look at the second one. We have to hasten. Verse number 13, he says, secondly, stand fast in the faith. And I like to call this remain steadfast. Now, stand is a great translation of the word because it can be used literally. So in other words, you might decide that <clears throat> you're going to plant your feet in a certain position and stand there. And that would be, the word is sometimes used that way. However, in this context, it's used figuratively. That is, it's used spiritually in the spiritual sense of the term. That is that we, we need to take a stand and we need to maintain that. We need to remain steadfast. And Paul tells us that the con connotation of this, the context of this is spiritual because he tells us the sphere, and it's not the physical physical realm, it's the spiritual. He says there, if you look at your text, stand fast in the faith. So the application is spiritual. We need to remain steadfast in the faith. Well, faith is constantly under attack. Did you realize that? Do, do you realize that faith, the faith, is under attack today? And again, many times we're just unaware of these things. We don't think about these things, and we don't realize that problems can occur when we're not vigilant and watchful and determined to remain steadfast in our commitment to the Word of God. 
It was certainly true at Corinth. All you have to do is look back one page from where we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12, and this is astonishing to see how this now comes out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12, Paul says this. Everybody recognizes 1 Corinthians 15 as the great resurrection chapter. And Paul says this, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, look at that. The resurrection was an essential part of the gospel. Beloved, we're not talking here about personal opinions or preferences or those types of things that are really not fundamentals in the scripture. But Paul, when he was talking about the gospel, he says, I declare unto you the gospel that I preached unto you, by which also ye are saved. And then he said, here's what it is. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Without the resurrection, and this is what this whole chapter is about, we have no gospel. Our faith is vain. We're yet in our sins. And yet somehow, due to the influence of false teaching, there were some people in Corinth who were parading around the idea that, well, there was really no resurrection of the dead. It was a popular way of thinking in Greek thought, but it certainly has no place in Christian thought. You know, beloved, this is a problem. This is a problem not just in the Corinthian church, but, you know, you think about uh, the little epistle of Jude at the end of the New Testament, and it just shows you how we have to be on guard and determined and committed to remain steadfast in the faith. That verse in Jude 3 is well known. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort ye that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And then he says this in verse 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares. Paul was worried about this in Acts chapter 20 when he called and met with the the elders from the church at Ephesus, and he says, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I warned you day and night with tears. And he talked about people arising from within and people attacking from without. And the, the adversary, the evil one, is constantly attempting to undermine the faith. And boy, have you really thought how much the faith is really under attack today? I mean, for years now, we've had to endure the attacks on the sanctity of life, for example since Roe v. Wade in our country in 1973. But now we're having to endure attacks, and some people even within quote-unquote realms of evangelical Christianity are embracing the whole LGBT thought that some people are just born that way and that we should be accepting of others. And I'm not advocating that we not be loving towards sinners. That's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying we cannot afford to compromise the biblical truth that the sanctity of Marriage has to do with the, with the fact that God has ordained that marriage is between one biological male and one biological biologically born woman for life. And we can't compromise those truths no matter how many people who seem to be religious or call themselves Christians or who attempt to reinterpret the scripture to accommodate those unbiblical beliefs tell us that it's okay. It's not okay. So let me ask you to think about this illustration for a moment because... Most people uh, are certainly attuned to when deer hunting and deer season comes around, and this is what I talk about in my track, Missing the Mark, you know, that it's almost a fall ritual. The uh, People go out and sight their light rifles in to be certain that they have the proper zero because, you know, maybe you bumped it last year or something of that nature. And I want you to think about this for a minute. 
When you adjust a rifle scope, you're, you have two adjustments. You have an adjustment for elevation, which is your up and down, and you have an, uh, an adjustment for elevation, I'm sorry, not elevation, but for windage, which is your left and right. So let's say that you want to sight this rifle in at 100 yards, and you go out, and you have a bench rest, and you fire three shots to see where you're hitting, and you find that you're hitting one inch to the right. Well, and your elevation is fine. You're right on as far as up and down, but you're one inch to the right. Well, if you're confident that you're not going to be shooting more than 100 yards, you're probably fine because you've got plenty of room there with a target like a deer. But if you've got to shoot 200 yards, 300 yards, 400 yards, I want you to think about what's going to happen now because what's off one inch at 100 yards may be off considerably more at 200, 300, or 400. And this is what it's like when error comes in small doses. It seems innocuous at first. It seems like it's just a small thing. But when it concerns the faith, it will ultimately, if we don't deal with this and nail it down at that point and, 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 and be certain that we're remaining steadfast in the faith, it will diverge in greater measure over time, and we will certainly find ourselves one day not believing the church, that is, will find itself not believing what it once did. And this is why many churches and denominations have gone awry, this very principle that's involved. All right, so we have stay awake or be watchful, as Paul tells us in verse uh, 13. And then we have the exhortation, secondly, to stand fast in the faith or to remain steadfast. Thirdly, we have an exhortation to be courageous. And if you look at your text, um, it's translated here, quit you like men. I, I kind of like that. That's kind of interesting. It's What's really interesting to me as a student of the ancient languages is, is that here's one of those times where English needs about three or four words to bring out the significance of what Greek is able to do and nail down in one word. And so the translation's fine. It's just kind of interesting. So let's take a look at the word and because it, it yields two very interesting applications. First of all, it's just one Greek word, as I said a moment ago. But it's interesting to notice that the root of this word, the root of this verb in the original language, is actually, has in it, the word for a biological male. Now, let me say something, that, and hopefully this will help us to, to understand why I'm saying a biological male, because Greek has a general word for man, that's anthropos. And you know anthropology and all that kind of thing. And so it's, it, that is more the idea of mankind and would embrace the human race in many contexts. But when you use the word aner, that's the word if you want to distinctly refer to as a, a male as apart from a female. So the first application that this is going to yield is, is when Paul says, quit yourselves like men, he's referring to the fact that we certainly do need men to be men these days in our churches. And unfortunately, it just seems like many times we don't have that. We don't have strong leadership. We don't have people who are committed. Uh, we have a lot of milquetoast Christianity. And beloved, this is not a sexist comment at all. There is a need and a place for manliness and men to be men and to be leaders. This is what God has called us in the unique role that men have to do. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about this here Speaking about being men and the church needing good, strong male leadership, I don't know if you've ever heard the story or not behind uh, that wonderful song that we all enjoy, written by George Duffield, uh, 
was stand up, stand up for Jesus. And the second stanza really gets to the point that I'm trying to make now. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, the trumpet call obey, forth to the mighty conflict in this his glorious day. Ye that are men, and we sang in the beginning, rise up, O men of God. Ye that are men, now serve him against unnumbered foes. Let courage rise with danger and strength to strength oppose. Well, there's a really interesting story behind what happened here because it's, it was inspired by a, a, a minister by the name of Dudley Ting, and it was really in, sort of inspired by his dying words or his dying request. He was a, a, a young preacher in Philadelphia in the 1800s, so right in our own state. In addition to starting a church there, Dudley Ting and other ministers were involved in preaching revivals there uh, through, uh, with the YMCA. People would come during lunch, and then they would preach. And in March of 1858, Dudley Ting, he, in addition to founding a church, he was involved in all of this, but he preached a rousing sermon to 500 young men at the YMCA, and there were over 1,000 professions of faith. He was reported to have said, I would rather give this right arm and have it amputated at the trunk than, I should come, than that I should come short of my duty to you in delivering God's message. Well, boy, that's, that's someone who's certainly portraying this role. Well, only a few days later, Dudley Ting went to the barn. He wanted to see how the mule was doing. The mule was hooked up to a, a machine that was uh, shelling corn. Somehow his sleeve got caught in the machine. His arm got drawn into the machine, to the cogs of the wheel, and he it was badly maimed. And he actually passed away the week following from this terrible injury. Well, before he died, he was asked if he had any message for his fellow ministers in Philadelphia at the time of these revival meetings at the YMCA. And this is what he said. Tell them, let us all stand up for Jesus. And his fellow minister, colleague, and friend, Dr. George Duffield, was so inspired by those words that he wrote that hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And as I say, it has that particular appeal in stanza number two. Ye that are men now serve him against unnumbered foes. So our first application here is there's very definitely a need for strong male leadership today, and the church often lacks it. At the same point, though, that's certainly not all that's involved, and it doesn't leave the ladies out, because then you come to the more general idea that's involved in this, and that general idea is simply courage. And that's why I've entitled my, my third point here, we need to be courageous. You know, it takes a lot of courage to deal sometimes with situations in churches, Relating this now to the church at Corinth, you know, they had a situation that you talk about needing courage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 5 and verse 2 tells us about this, that verse 1 says, It is commonly reported among you that there is fornication, and such fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And Paul says, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Wow, there's a subject nobody likes to talk about today, church discipline. It takes a lot of courage to do something like that. It's a lot easier just to try to avoid it, just to try to, to, to sweep it under the carpet. And too often this goes on in our churches where we're not willing to really take a scriptural position when we should on an issue 
and we compromise, and then it just causes ultimately long-range harm to the church. But the courage is not just necessary on the part of male leadership. The, the, the courage is necessary on everyone in the church, all the members of the church, because they have to support biblical action, and they have to want the church to maintain a biblical stance. And so it's interesting how all these three these things dovetail together. Just think about this. Stay awake and remain steadfast. And then he says to be courageous. Well, it takes courage to remain steadfast in the faith. These things all sort of fall one right after the other. They're all integrated. They're all necessary. And finally, uh, in verse number 13, that is, the fourth of these very crisp, precise commands with this little bit of a military bearing and flavor is the last one where it says, be strong. Look at your verse. That's exactly how it's rendered, is to be strong. Well, the root meaning of this word is, is force or might. And you can have force or might in the physical realm, but again, the application of this exhortation is spiritual because God is not so much concerned here about telling the church at Corinth to have bodybuilders in the physical sense. He's more concerned that they have bodybuilders in the spiritual sense. Now think about that. Nothing wrong with going to the gym. Nothing wrong with keeping yourself in shape. And there are a lot of people who do that and take a great deal of pride in it. I wonder if we give as much attention to building the body as we, the, the spiritual body, the church, whether we think of us as individual members, our own personal walk with the Lord, our own personal lives, or whether we think about the kind of preaching and the kind of things that we do in the church that are designed to build up the body, because this is this is the second of the two great things that are the job of the church. We are, number one, to evangelize the lost. We are, number two, to build up the saints. This is what to edify means. And we do this through the Word of God, and it's important to give diligence to the Word of God. It's important to be, as I brought you a message uh, a number of weeks ago now, it's important to be good Bereans, to be strong in the faith, and to have spiritual power and spiritual strength. Well, how do we do this? Well, it's kind of interesting. There's a little hint in this that you don't quite see because of how it's translated. It's actually in the passive voice. And so if you translated it that way, it might not be the smoothest English, but it would give us a clue. If you did that, you would simply have, instead of be strong, you would have be strengthened. Well, of course, that begs the question of how are we strengthened? Who is the one or what is the thing that strengthens us? We don't do it so much ourselves so much as we yield to the power of someone else who does that in our lives. So this is where a couple of cross-references really help us because Paul uses the identical expression over in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Here you go. That he would grant you, Ephesians 3, 16, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened. There it is, to be strengthened. Note the passive, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. So how are we strengthened as Christians? How are we strong as Christians? Well, the Spirit of God does this as we yield ourselves, as we hear the Word of God, as we read the Word of God, as we're diligent about our walk with the Lord, the Spirit of God uses that to strengthen us, to build the body of Christ, to build us as individual believers and make us strong. Paul has it again over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and this is a verse I know that you're very familiar with. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. 
So the context of this is spiritual. Paul is concerned about spiritual strength, not physical strength. Talk about all of this really dovetailing. Now do you see? We're to stay awake, he says. Be watchful. We're to stand fast in the faith. Remain steadfast. We're to be courageous. Quit yourselves like men. We're to be strong. It takes spiritual strength to do those other things that have just been commanded of us. But let's take a moment and think about the final one, because this is where maybe we get a little bit of a surprise. You get to verse 14, and he departs, it seems, from that crisp, precise command, like with a military flavor or bearing, and he says, let all your things be done with charity. And of course, we recognize in that word charity, the word for love, the agape love. And Paul is so often, uh, he, he so often does this. It's, it's unique to Paul, but Paul loves to do this. He loves to cite a number of Christian virtues. And then he likes to point to love as the thing that holds the whole thing together and ties the whole thing together. Let me give you the one of the better examples of this. If we if we look at the book of Colossians, chapter 3 and verse 14, he names a, a lot of these Christian virtues. He says, for example, um, verse 12, put on, Colossians 3, 12, put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, that's compassion, kindness, humbleness of mind, that's humility, meekness, long-suffering. Verse 13, he mentions forbearance and forgiveness. Then he gets to verse 14, and here's the point. And above all, he says, the crowning virtue is put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. Think about that expression for a moment, bond of per perfectness, because the bond in this case is like a belt. Now, ladies, indulge the illustration for a moment. But men, if you think about this, um, you think about important how important a belt is. Because if you don't have a belt, what's probably going to happen is that, well, what happens if your pants are too loose? Well, then they slip down just a little bit and you look unkempt. And then you, the, the cuffs of your pants or the length of your pants at the end, that's dragging and you mess up uh, uh, and it gets unduly worn because you're stepping on it. You look slouchy in appearance when your pants uh, slouch down. And if, you, if you're dressed in a coat and tie or something like this, every just thing just seems to be offset when your pants are worn exactly at the right place for you as a person and that belt holds it there. And any departure from that is really noticeable to someone, particularly if your, your coat, like what I have on here this morning, is unbuttoned, then that's, that's, that's readily apparent. This is the illustration that Paul's using. He says, you know, love is like that belt. You have the other things that are important, the shirt, the coat, the pants, the socks, the shoes, all those things. But the whole thing can be fouled up if you don't have the belt there to keep everything just as it needs to be. And Paul says that's the way love is. You can have these four things that he mentions in verse number 13. You can stay awake and be watchful. You can remain steadfast and take the stand in the faith that's necessary to take. You can be courageous and quit yourselves like a man. You can be strong. But if love doesn't flavor, if love is not that bond of perfectness that Paul is talking about here, the whole thing goes out of balance. Think about the situations at Corinth, because you could either handle those situations harshly, or you could handle them in love. 
What about, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? This is a great example in the church at Corinth. He's talking about Christian liberty. And he's talking about the fact that, verse number 3, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. And he says in the first couple of verses, now as touching things offered in sacrifice to idols, we know. We have all knowledge. But he says, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. So what's he really saying? He's saying, well, we know that the idol is nothing. So really, we know that it would not be wrong to eat this meat because there's really no idol. But he says that doesn't take into account the weaker brother. That doesn't take into account the person for whom that's a stumbling block. Maybe they have a background in that, and that's just offensive to them. It seems like you're you're not uh, you're, you're endorsing the idol. And Paul says, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no meat while the world standeth. This is charity, beloved. You can use your knowledge in such a way that it's harsh, or you can use your knowledge in such a way that it's tempered and governed by love, and that makes you a true Christian when you do that. Or there's another example over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I mentioned this one earlier, but this is about that brother that they had to deal with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and apparently he repented and now they need to be forgiving to him because Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 2, Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. And how often this creates problems in churches. Uh, there's a problem and we deal with it harshly. Now, Paul called for strong measures concerning that person. Discipline was necessary. But once he repented, it was also just as important, just as necessary for the body to extend forgiveness to him and to receive him back. And ask yourself, how often do those things really happen? How often does love really govern what we do? Or how often do we go, go in with guns blazing and we end up being harsh and we don't convince people of the fact that our heart is really in the right place. Oh, we've done the right thing, but have we done it in the right way? That's kind of the point. You know, there are a lot of people who have brought out this delicate balance and relationship between truth and love. And uh, I have a couple of things I'd like to give you. For example, Warren Wearsby had this quotation, truth without love is brutality. Get that. Truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. Someone else put it this way, truth may be vital, but without love it is also unbearable. Or another Christian pastor put it this way, truth without love is mean love, is mean. Truth without love is mean. Love without truth is meaningless. Or here's a fourth one. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. And I want to ask you to think about that for a moment. How often that's true? How often have we gone in, as I said, and we've told people what they needed to hear, but our manner and our spirit was in such a way that they just... God could not bless that, and they couldn't receive it because they felt like we were being overbearing and harsh with them. It's a delicate balance, beloved, and this is the genius of this because you have those boom, 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 four crisp commands in verse number 13, and then you have 
verse 14 that comes along and says, you know what, the whole thing needs to be seasoned and flavored with Christian love. And if you do that, now you have the Christian soldier. You don't just have the secular soldier, you have the Christian soldier. So when we think about Memorial Day, our thoughts are drawn to soldiers. And if you think about the spiritual application of that, our responsibility is to be the proper Christian soldier. And I, I, I just am amazed at how in these two quick verses, in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14, Paul puts this all together. I hope you'll think about that this particular Memorial Day. It's a wonderful thing to live in a land like America where we have freedom and to contemplate the sacrifice that people have made, how much they have loved our country in order to do that. Make no mistake about it, being a Christian soldier also requires duty and sacrifice, and that, of course, brings us to love. Just think about Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 for a moment. For when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even die, dare to die. But God commended or demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, was motivated by the ultimate love. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate sacrifice involved the ultimate love. And, oh God, we pray today as we contemplate these ideas that you will give us the wisdom to understand just how important it is to blend duty and love together in the way that Paul gives us guidance here. Lord, as tomorrow we have uh, an observed holiday, we think about Memorial Day, we think about the soldiers who loved country and loved duty enough to die for us to have the freedoms that we have today. We thank you for this. We thank you for this heritage. And even beyond that, we thank you for Jesus Christ who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. And now we have the prospect of freedom, spiritual freedom through his shed blood on the cross of Calvary. May our hearts well up in gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise for all that you've done for us. And Lord, I humbly pray once again that you will use this message that I've brought today to be an encouragement and a help to folks. For I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And may God give you a great day tomorrow, Memorial Day.